Lord, thank you that we can trust your absolute sovereign plan. Thank you that you are a God who loves to speak. And so we pray that as we look at these verses together, we, we pray that you would speak to us afresh. Help us to see what they mean and help us to see what they mean for us. Be at work this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've shared this before, but um, a few years ago, just a day or so after Christmas, some good friends of ours came to visit. Um, they were coming for a wedding in nearby Ensham, um, which if you know where Ensham is, think Hill End and kind of keep going. Um, it was great to see them. They were staying the night. They arrived on Boxing Day. Um, it was early evening. It was dark. It was slightly damp. Um, they had not been to our house before. And if you know our house, they, you, you come around the corner to the left and then you turn left again and they park next to our car on a slope like this. And it was a bit damp. Um, they came to the house, they got all their stuff, and, and there you go. Next morning, um, he was doing the wedding officiating stuff, and so he had to leave early. Um, and we found out next morning that their car is pretty good at wheel spinning on wet grass on a slope. In fact, it turns out it's better than average at destroying people's lawns, which is a good thing if you drive a Passat, perhaps. It would have been quite amusing, except it was a wedding. Um, and so people were dressed in smart wedding clothes and trying to push a car up the hill with mud spraying around wasn't ideal. It meant that our front garden ended up like a bit of a mud bath. Then if you add on to that various Amazon delivery vans, um, family members, other visitors who came and do similar things. They pull left around the corner, they pull left next to our car, and it's a mud bath. The thing about that time of year, though, was a week or so later it snowed, and it snowed pretty heavily. It wasn't quite a white Christmas, but it was beautiful. The kids look out in the morning at 7 a.m., um, and you've got this amazing lawn, absolutely flawless, perfect white lawn. The evening, the night before, it was a muddy, messy mess. The next morning, it was perfect and white and pristine. Gone is the mud, gone is the muck, gone are the tire tracks. Now it's covered in a pure, perfect blanket of white, at least until the afternoon when the temperatures rise. And out comes the mud again and the tire tracks and the mess, and it's awful once again. And yet isn't, in one sense, that a picture of us? Inside, we know God is at work, but we're still that mess. We, we know our hearts are far from him, far from what they ought to be. And so the outside, we cover it up. We know how to wear the face, to wear the mask, to play the part, to look like we're all together, to look like we're sorted, to give the cheesy smile at church. Yeah, good thanks. But underneath that beautiful, calm exterior, underneath the smiles and the grins, underneath we're this muddy mess of tire tracks. And it's yucky. Self-centeredness and pride and anger and, and what about me? And we've become experts at delicately laying a, a layer of slow, a snow over us to cover up the reality of the mess underneath. But the heart of this passage in Mark 7 lies a truth quite like that. This passage in Mark 7 is a passage about being clean. It's a passage about being undefiled and pure and holy before God. And yet so often our thinking can drift into holiness being about cleanliness, acceptability to God, but on the outside, about what people can see on the outside. 
looking sorted, looking together, looking good. And yet what we'll see as we dig into our passage is that our God is all about the internals. It's not about what you can see, it's about what he can see. It's not about the outside, it's the inside. Which I think makes this a very relevant passage for us and a very relevant passage for our world this morning. Do you ever have that nagging doubt? That doubt that if people actually knew what you were really like, if they got through the pristine snow on the outside, if they got through the layers and the masks and the self-confident outer shell and the, the games that we play, the image that we portray for others, if they got through all that and they knew the real you, then actually you're not sure they would want to know you. Or try this. So imagine, imagine living in a world where we all have perfect mind-reading abilities. And I can see into your head now. Concentrate, come on. Or I know what you're thinking, I know what you've thought, I know what happened yesterday, I know what you've done. Imagine that kind of a world. I can see into your head, but you can see into my head. And you know what I'm thinking, and you know what I've done, and how would that be for us? I'd want to suggest to you we'd find that quite hard. Because suddenly the internals are out. Suddenly we feel exposed and we feel vulnerable. The snow is gone, the embarrassing muddy mess underneath is exposed and we feel, what, we feel ashamed. Or so in Mark 7 for this morning, it's a passage at root that's to do with what makes someone unclean. Have a look at verses 1 to 5 with me and you'll see the language of defilement and cleanliness and washing there. So verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of the disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now, the background to this is important, and it's the fact that in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, God gave Moses um, and his people cleanliness laws. For example, for Israel at the time, if you touched a dead animal or a human, or if you had infectious skin diseases or boils, if you came into contact with mildew or, or other mold, or if you had a bodily discharge, or if you ate meat of an animal regarded as unclean, then essentially you became unclean. You were defiled, you were ceremonially impure. And that would mean you couldn't enter the temple. That would mean you couldn't worship, you were separated from God until you could be made clean again. And these good, God-given laws that shaped all of life were a massive teaching aid for the people. They were to impress upon the Israelite that, that to be in the presence of a pure and holy God, you must be clean. 
And you see, it mattered. They wanted to be clean. They didn't want to be separated from God, and so, well, it seems just to make doubly sure, they added to them, they supplemented them. There were these, do you see the language, the traditions of the elders. In verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, there's talk of ceremonial hand-washing, and, and pitchers, and kettles, and, and pots. Not from the scriptures, but human additions. Which means they are appalled when Jesus and his disciples turn up and don't wash. Guys, do you not care about being clean before God? Do you not, does it not matter to you? And so verse 6, well it hits us like a punch in the face. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. See the little footnote, it's from Isaiah 29. The, these people, says God through Isaiah, prophetically, they... They honour me with their lips. They say the right kind of things. They, they, they sound like they want to please me. They look holy. Guys, they're at church. They know how to do it. But in reality, their hearts are far from me. They don't actually do what pleases God. But rather, they hold on to human traditions. And we say, well, how do they do that? Well, verse 9 to 13 gives us, I presume, one example of many. He talks, um, do you see there, of Corban, a word there in verse 11. It was kind of a vow you could make whereby you would des designate your money to God. You would, you would tag certain money as if it were for him. Imagine the scenario. Um, you generously dedicate a stash of money as Corban. And then your parents get ill. Or the rest of the family get into financial problems. And you say, um, guys, I know I had designated that money as Corban. I know I had tagged that. But look, something has come up. It's really important. I, I need to help up my parents. I need to pay the hospital bills. I need to look after them. I can't just ignore them. Look, can I unpledge this money, please? And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, ah, sorry. No, no, that's Corban. You can't do that. You'll have to tell your parents you can't help them. You can't help with the uh, hospital bills. You've just got to walk away. And yet Jesus says that is sin. He you say you, your human Corban tradition, it means that you aren't looking after the parents that you're meant to. Your, your Corban tradition, it means that people are sinning against God now. You're making up extra rules which always trump God's law. And friends, do you know the human heart has a tendency to always do that? We add in these extra protective laws, but they're never good for us. It's as old as the Garden of Eden. Do you remember Eve in Genesis 3? When, what does Eve say when the serpent comes and about the tree of knowledge of good and evil? She says, we must not eat from it and we must not touch it or we will surely die. But, but there's been no mention of touching it. 
Where's she got that from? It sounds like she's added to what God said. Is she doing that for protection reasons? Wanting to keep away from the tree, maybe. And those things aren't necessarily bad things. But as here in Mark 7 and as elsewhere in the Bible, there's a pattern that crops up a few times where we begin to trust and rely on the addition to what God has said rather than trusting and relying on what God has said. And that was where the Pharisees had slipped up. Actually, for them, cleanliness, cleanliness was pretty easy. It was manageable. It was keeping the dirt away. Not letting unclean things get in. Not letting ourselves be contaminated. And in one sense, that is pretty easy to do. It's important we get clear on this because we live in a confused world today, but a world in which mostly it's assumed that human nature is basically good, unless it's a politician or somebody who disagrees with us. But in many people's eyes, we are, we are born okay on the inside. Children, children are good and innocent and pure. And the danger, they say, is that as we grow up, we're polluted by what's coming in, the bad influences outside us, things that come into us, not the food we eat, but the company we keep, or the friends at school, or the habits we observe in others, or the, the siblings that we copy, or the bad example of parents, or the influence of TV, or social media, or internet, or badness is out there outside of us. And if that's the case, if we're born basically good, but badness is out there and it comes and pollutes us, then I must do as much as I can to keep away from the badness. And if I stay away from dirty people and dirty movies and bad influences, then maybe I can keep myself undefiled. Maybe I can be clean. Or if I can hedge my children around with particularly strict rules, if I can control them and keep them very close to me on a tight leash and don't let them mix with bad people, maybe they'll stay clean. Or if I can install the apps on my computer or my phone or my iPad and maybe I can keep the dirt away from me and maybe I can be clean. Yet isn't that what the Pharisees are doing? They are pumping all their energy into trying to keep the dirt outside of them, trying to protect themselves. And then Jesus totally blows their ideas out of the water. Why? Because he says fundamentally it's not a question of, of external uncleanness, but rather it's the internal, it's what's inside us. Washing doesn't help with true defilement. And as he quoted Isaiah as being about the heart, so again, verse 14, have a listen. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. I love that. Are you so dull? Yes, Jesus, we are. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. What, what makes you unclean? 
your heart. And you can't fake what's in your heart. Do you want to know what you're really like? Think about you at your worst. And in one sense, that's us. Because that's what our heart is like. And we make excuses and we try and defend our, our words or thoughts or actions. We try and point the finger and show it, it wasn't our fault, or at least I'm not as bad as them. But actually, that's the natural us. Because that's our hearts. And I know that's the kind of statement that's going to lose you friends. Or that will make the dinner party quite awkward. But Jesus says we are not basically good. We don't just need education. We're not just a product of external forces that pollute us, that come into us, that change us. Jesus says the root problem, the foundational issue is not our circumstances. The foundational problem is our hearts. And that's not solved by good behaviour or trying a bit harder, or being a bit more self-controlled, or turning over a new leaf, or another new year, or whatever it might be. The problem is our hearts. Of course, part of the problem is that we just learn to live with it. Sin is a little bit like body odour. We, we lose sensitivity to it. We don't notice it in ourselves anymore. Our, our consciences get seared, our hearts get hardened, we self-justify, we're the victims, it's not my fault, and we deceive ourselves. And we think we're okay, but Jesus is really clear. No, no, naturally we are unclean because of our hearts. Because we follow in the line of Adam. If you've been around from the start of the series... There's a sense in which we've been waiting for Mark 7, for this idea of, of uncleanness and of sin. Why is that? Because we know that Jesus has come to deal with this kind of thing. From the, from the very start of the gospel, if you flip back a bit, you'll see the gospel has been a battle about Jesus defeating suffering and Satan and sin. He's not just come to kick out the Romans, as perhaps some people thought. It's just that that sin is now in much sharper focus. Actually, we saw the pattern already as well with Dave a couple of weeks ago. The, do you remember chapter 6? That unpleasant snapshot of the kingdom of darkness. Do you remember John was there beheaded at Herod's soiree? Herodias hated John the Baptist because he spoke against her mar marriage with Herod. And so Herodias' daughter dances for Herod, deceives him, and then he makes that stupid cowardly promise. And John ends up being murdered. And you have a look down at chapter 7 and verse 20 again and look at the language and doesn't describe that kind of party. Well, verse 21, for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. And you see that party in chapter 6? You can tick a number of those as we go through. There's a sense in which we've been expecting Mark 7. We've been waiting for this talk about what sin really looks like. About what Jesus has come to deal with. 
What are these internal thoughts? Verse 21, have a look down, and that is basically the umbrella title, if you like. That is the broad descriptive at the start of verse 21. And I think they are a world about self. A world of entitlement. A world where I am at the centre of my life and I will get what I want. Thank you very much. And if you try and block that, then just be careful. As we saw with Herodias. And if that is the kind of title, then he begins to unpack some of the aspects of what a world of self looks like. The first one there is sexual immorality. It's wider than just adultery or, or even open immorality, but it's, it's the way that you have that thought about that person and then you linger there. It's the battle that people have with images and internet so often in our culture. It's an idea that shapes our world at the moment. Theft, secondly. Theft doesn't have to be the kind of thing that you get on Crime Watch. Why do we even need signs in shops that say shoplifting is theft? There's something in us that, that wants, that takes, that desires. Maybe it's borrowing what is not yours with little thought of ever returning it. Maybe we need to expand our definitions slightly, it's not just to be thinking about physical things that we take, but actually money or time even. Murder, adultery, greed. I find it striking that he puts those three alongside each other. Because God doesn't make the distinctions that we make. Most of us will probably agree that murder or adultery are no-go areas, but greed? Greed can't be that bad, can it, Jesus? And yet in our materialistic Western culture, greed is our blind spot. No one thinks they're greedy. We have this greed for material things. It's largely expected. Of course you've got loads of nice stuff in your house. Maybe there's a bit of pushback on that recently with folk with a more kind of environmental conscience, a generation who care more about living frugally, less pollution. I don't know. But I do know the advertisers know exactly what we're like. They know how to tempt our greedy hearts with the promise of joy and satisfaction and salvation. And if only you have this item, this is what you need. And then you will have a life like this and a family like this. And isn't that what you want? Maybe we get it and within a week we want something else. And Christmas advertising has already started. Malice. Malice is an unpleasant word. Again, we saw it a couple of weeks ago with Herodias. Malice is the desire to harm someone. Harm them physically or verbally. Think of that person who has offended you or been unkind to you or that person who just winds you up because of who they are. And yet in your darker moments, you would secretly love to see them fail or suffer or just go away. 
or the way that we replay that conversation in our heads, um, scenarios where our enemies always lose embarrassingly and we end up winning and as the hero. We want the worst things for them and the best things for us. Deceit and lewdness. That's to do the way we speak. Deceitful speech is to to pull the wool over someone's eyes. We're in a corner. We're not quite 100% truthful. We make ourselves look a bit better. We try and justify what we've done. Just a bit kind of economical with the truth. And yet really it's deceit. Or, Or lewd speech. It's speaking in a vulgar or unpleasant or smutty way. I was reflecting this morning that you struggle to find a comedy at the moment or a sitcom where it's not full of lewd speech. Envy. Envy is a strange word. It's almost the kind of golem-like me and self and what I have or what I want. And it covers everything from a, a stinginess of character, a lack of generosity, uh, clinging on to what is mine, all the way through to the jealous attitude of what you've got and I want it. I want your things, your possessions, your life. I wish I had them. Slander. It's from the gossip that points to the half-truths. It's speaking about somebody behind their back. Arrogance. Nothing wrong with me. <laughs> Actually, you, you are, to be honest, you're quite lucky to have me on the team. Um, if only you knew it. And folly. Folly is that Old Testament word for those who don't know God. People who are lost in the world. Foolish and chaotic in their behaviour. Morally and spiritually insensitive. They don't know the God who made them and so they don't know how to live in his world. They don't know true wisdom. And Jesus says to us, do you want to know what makes you unclean? Guys, it's not the outside of the bowl that you can just scrub. You can wash off with soap and washing up liquid. It's, it's, in, it's your heart. That's what makes you unclean. Your heart and my heart. And those words don't describe other people. They describe you. And me in our natural bodies. And that, says Jesus, is the problem, and it is a massive problem. Which is why we just need to pull into a lay by briefly and talk about the new covenant and why the promise of new hearts matters so much to a people like us, why it is such amazing news, amazing news for you, amazing news for me. The Gospel of Mark will end, you probably know how it ends, but it will end with the man speaking these words, dying on a cross, at the hands, at least in part, of these Pharisees and then being raised again, the tomb being empty. And as that happens, God's plan is enacted, the new covenant is inaugurated, it's here. And so will you rejoice with me over Ezekiel 36? Why don't we go and find it? I'm not going to spend too long there, we'll have more time in home groups. Ezekiel 36, verse 25, which is page 868, if you have one of these church Bibles. Ezekiel 
Ezekiel 36 and verse 25, bottom half of the first little um, column there. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleanness. Do you see the transformation that God promises us? Isn't it beautiful? As I say, we'll do more in home groups, but rejoice with me now because he will cleanse us from our impurities. He, he will give us new hearts of flesh. He will put his spirit in us and he will be our God and we will be his people. And friends, if you are here this morning as a Christian, one following Jesus, we have those new hearts. You have a new heart. And yet, why is it then, when we read Mark chapter 7, that those words in verse 21 and 22 are more familiar than we'd like them to be? Why are they still, to some extent, a part of our story? What is going on? Just briefly on that, we live in what people sometimes call an overlap. We, we have these new hearts of flesh. God, God has changed us. In Christ, he sees us as being perfected and pure and clean. But we still know that daily dirt. We're still in these bodies. We're still in this world. We're not finished yet. And so maybe you know the reality of, of what you're like inside. You've been a Christian for a while now and you're still struggling. And you, you question whether... God, are you able to change me? Maybe you come this morning and you are cynical. You can put on the act. You know how to cover yourself in proverbial pristine snow. You know what it's like to walk into church and say, yeah, we're good, thanks. Everything's good. But in your heart of hearts, you think, can God really deal with the muddy, messy, chaotic heart that is mine? The reality of 21 and 22, 23. Well, for the cynical among us, have a look at how the chapter continues as Nama read for us. I think this is really striking. He, Jesus moves back into unclean Gentile territory. The geography matters. I studied geography. Carry on. Geography matters. There is a point being made here. Here we see Jesus' power to deal with unclean people in unclean places. So 24 to 30, we get this encounter with this Syrophoenician woman. She's a really unusual example um, in the Gospels. Actually, she is, I think, one of, if not the most highly commended person in the Gospels from Jesus, from the lips of Jesus. What are we to make of her? She, she comes before him begging for healing for her daughter. And she says, he says something very strange in response in verse 27. It almost sounds offensive. He says, um, 
First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And you see, Israel are the children, the Gentiles, as they were often called in those times in a derogatory manner. They're called the dogs, dogs like the Greeks, dogs like this Syrophoenician woman. They were, they were unclean in the eyes of Israel. It was a common but deliberately offensive turn from the time. And did she just catch Jesus on a bad day? Was he still cross with the Pharisees from earlier in the chapter? He goes to Tyre, she turns up and she gets it in the neck. No, I don't think so. I think the best thing is that he's not speaking a word of insult, but he's speaking a parable to her. He knows that she's a mother. And Jesus says, look, you know how things work at the dinner table, don't you? Yeah, there's an order to things. You know how families eat? Imagine the dinner table routine. First, the children come and eat. And then when they've had enough, they go and the pets eat. You can't get things the wrong way around. The, the animals can't come and eat at the table before the children do. Although some children might eat like animals. <laughs> but can you imagine that? Sorry, sorry kids. Um, it's not your turn yet. We need to wait and see first what the dogs will have left for you. If the guinea pigs are hungry, there's not going to be much left, is there? That wouldn't go down well in our house. Well, so there is miraculous grace even for this lady, one who would be seen as unclean. She's not the kind of person who is meant to receive grace. See, she gently wrestles with Jesus, though. She says, all right, I may not have a place at the table, verse 28, but there's more than enough on that table for everyone. And I need my bread now, please. And she shows us that even the unclean people can receive what they need. That, I think, is the point. I wonder whether she is an example for us, in some senses, in our cynicism. We're, we're not changing as quickly as we want to. We're, we're not what we thought we would be. We're frustrated by the ongoing presence of our sin inside. Verse 20, 21, 22, 23 are too familiar And we know we need his grace. But maybe to put it bluntly, we question whether there's still enough grace for us. Is he not tired? Is he not tired of my failures by now? Our uncleanness, our, okay, I promise I'll never do that again, but we do. We know the truth about the mess and the mud underneath the pristine exterior. And yet you see the king who pours out grace and kindness to a Syrophoenician woman is the king who pours out grace and kindness to his children. And indeed the king who doesn't leave us alone but by his spirit is at work within us daily by his grace and he is shaping and he is moulding and he is chiselling us off. These new covenant hearts of flesh that we have, he is changing us to be more like himself. We are unclean, we are clean because we are in Christ, and yet he is making us increasingly clean as we put to, get to death the sinful nature, and daily we put on Christ. And you see, when we are feeling cynical, and when we are feeling jaded, and when we're not quite sure if there's grace enough for us. So have a look at the Syrophoenician woman, because there we see our generous king, who pours out what his children need, even though we don't really deserve it. Let's pray.
Lord, we're sorry that we see too much of those things in our hearts. We're sorry that those, those descriptions in verse 21 and 22 are too familiar to us. And yet we thank you then for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this new covenant. Thank you that he has given us hearts of flesh. Thank you that he has cleansed us from our impurities. Thank you that he has put his spirit in us. Thank you that you will be our God and we will be your people. And so we long that we would increasingly live out that reality and that truth. We long that you would be at work in us, making us clean, sanctifying us, transforming us into the likeness of our King. And when we're feeling cynical or jaded, or just tired, tired of our sin, tired of this world, and we're not sure there's grace enough for us. We thank you for the Syrophoenician woman. We thank you that even though in one sense she was unclean, because of who she was and where she came from, thank you that there was grace even for her. Thank you that you are the king who is generous. Thank you that you are the king who loves to give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.